Standard Issue for all women. Oh, hey there. Welcome to episode 12 of the Standard Issue Podsy. I'm Mickey Noonan, and I'm genuinely a little bit scared of ketchup. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I once won a fight with a Rottweiler. And I'm Jen Offord, and it's nearly my birthday. Oh, happy Aww. birthday, Jen. Thanks, mate. Later on, our film buff Yosra Osman chats about whitewashing in films, and Sarah Millican answers another of your live questions. Jen and I chat to scummy mummies, Helen Thorne and Ellie Gibson, about the pressure of being a perfect mother and gold lame catsuits. And I talk to comedian Caitlin Brodnick about her new book, Dangerous Boobies. I'm talking about what to get excited about in women's sport this autumn. And I do Disney's Aladdin. Have you got the monkeys? She's got the monkeys. But first, Jacob Rees-Mogg, how not to help in a disaster and pissing in the wind. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we stare hard and helpless at the catalogue of man-made and natural disasters and wonder, how much of this can we actually make jokes about? Thanks, sweet baby Jesus, for idiots trying to take photographs of hurricanes and a sea of dick splashes in power, making the world a truly terrible place. Oh, wait, no, not that last one. Sheesh. Very much a man-made disaster, Empathy Vacuum Jacob Rees-Mogg had a wild old week Firstly, overtaking Boris Johnson in a poll among Tories asking which twat they'd like to see ruling us next. And then going on TV to tell sentient potato Piers Morgan what he thought about abortion and gay marriage, views based on his Catholic beliefs, which most people have failed to see the relevance of. Although it is worth pointing out that the head of the Catholic Church does sit to the left of a number of politicians, including now, it seems, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh yes, we're in an age where an official statement from the Pope could turn out to be the voice of reason. Heaven, quite literally, help us. While a bit of JRM bashing is always welcome around these quarters, we do also think there is a serious point here, apart from his views being, frankly, a steaming pile of shite. And that point is that the presentation of his views that abortion, even when the pregnancy is a result of rape, implies there's a sliding scale of acceptability when it comes to a woman's right to choose what happens to her own body. And while we're on the subject of twats, let's have a little look at the next day's Daily Mail front page, which offered a quote from personified clickbait Sarah Vine. Vine, who must struggle to even take herself seriously as the wife of Michael Gove for the last 16 years, said while she didn't agree with Rhys Mogg's views, she does admire, and I quote, a man of real principle. I assume that admiration doesn't extend to Adolf Hitler or Big Joe Stalin. Though she must have a lovely time at home with Gove. Oh yeah, tell me where you stand on prison reform and the privatisation of the education system, Michael. Are the answers no and yes, followed by maniacal laughter and awkward clapping. And dry heaving. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, as all sorts of natural disasters hit the Caribbean, Mexico and the US, Donald, I like it when she calls me daddy. Mm, Yum. Let's just call him Donald Trump. Used a visit to Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. That was difficult to say. To further his frankly ludicrous ideas about the size of his hands. Tiny. He later helped to load a truck, passing a box through a truck window to the driver, who then presumably had to get out and put it in the back himself or drive with it on his lap. 
Police had to issue a warning for people not to shoot at the hurricane after a Florida man, who I'm going to guess very much voted for Donny John, set up a Facebook event called Shoot at Hurricane Irma. Let's show Irma we shoot first, wrote Ryan Edwards, who later clarified he'd had his tongue firmly in his cheek, as well as his finger on the trigger. Yet clearly bored with wiping the piss from their faces, 25,000 people had clicked going, while another 53,000 had clicked interested. And as frankly batshit as this is, these people have guns, which is truly fucking terrifying. Research published last week revealed the alarming impact of austerity measures on social workers and teachers. According to Bath Spa University, on average, 50% of members of both professions are looking to leave their jobs in the next 18 months, thanks to cuts to services. Presumably, they're hoping to spend some time with their friends and family before the imminent apocalypse. Still, on the plus side... Who needs GCSEs when the rapture comes? Um, Bath Spa University sounds really nice. Well. Like everyone's walking around in like dressing gowns and stuff. <laughs> oh, that seems a bit like my university experience. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I did used to go to Tesco's in my pyjamas. But anyway, I, st- I still, still go to Tesco's in my pyjamas. Yeah, I... Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing wrong with it. No, it's fine, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. No matter what time of day. Anyway, if we do make it another 10 years before Armageddon strikes, teachers aren't likely to exist anymore. Well, not in human form, according to Sir Anthony Selden, Master of Public School, Wellington College, who believes intelligent machines will have control of classrooms by 2027. The historian and political commentator outlined his vision at the British Science Festival before adjusting his double tie, leaping onto his hoverboard and going to watch Jaws 19. The last night of the proms gave self-appointed Ramona monitor Nigel Farage something to, well, moan about because Lord alone knows he seems to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. A campaign to hand out EU flags to people going a flag-waving inside the Royal Albert Hall went rather better than expected, causing Nigel to say he was going to hand out flags of his own, which of course didn't happen, which certainly follows the Brexit pattern. I fully expect UKIP to be writing to the proms organisers now to demand that in future the only things that can be waved at said event will be a union flag, a blue passport, a bendy banana or a health and safety document you've wiped your arse on. Yeah, sorry about that. Having recently taken to social media to encourage everyone to see the film Dunkirk, Farage got a standing ovation after a rabble-rousing speech at a far-right rally in Berlin. Presumably having described the film Dunkirk with an alternative ending, possibly taken from his favourite book, Hypocrisy for Dummies, while wearing an outfit borrowed from a devastated Paul Hollywood. The pointless skin casing was a guest of the anti-immigration party, Alternative für Deutschlander, where he was hailed as a role model and an inspiration. Just to clarify, he is not. And in a similar clarification, bears do indeed shit in the woods. YouTube star, because yes, that is a thing apparently. PewDiePie landed himself in hot water this week after using the N-word in one of his online broadcasts. PewDie, who is really a 27-year-old Swede called Felix Kelberg? Well, I don't think there's a question mark at the end of his name, but carry on. <laughs> and uh, and not an anthropomorphised bird, dropped the M-bomb while live-streaming himself playing a video game. Seriously, this dude gets billions of views per episode and apparently made 11 million quid last year through advertising. We're all in the wrong job, guys. PewDie apologised and said, I don't mean that in a bad way, because apparently there is a good way for a white person to use the N-word. 
But PewDie sort of has form in this respect after being dropped by Disney earlier this year for casually paying two people via a crowdsourcing website to hold a sign reading, Death to all Jews. The internet sensation, clearly from the Jeremy Clarkson school of Bants, defended himself against claims of anti-Semitism which he said were insane, unfair and that he did not support any kind of hateful attitudes. And finally, in other news, in Strictly News, Susan Cowman can dance with whoever the fuck she likes. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that part of the week where we suck the sea of sexist shit about women out of the news before spitting it back in a tsunami of outrage. Right now, Irma is spectacularly fucking things up all over the Caribbean and Florida shop. And now, think of the most famous hurricane of our lifetime. Katrina, right? Well, according to research by the Proceedings of the National Academy of the United States of America, more people die in hurricanes with female names than those named after chaps. The reason? Because those with masculine names are perceived as more powerful and dangerous, so people don't bother preparing themselves as much when it's a storm with a girly moniker. Despite the fact names are doled out in a strict male-slash-female rotation arbitrary to the strength of the hurricane. For fuck's sake. Can I ask a quick question? A quick question? A quick question. Oh, okay. If you go out in a male hurricane, can you get pregnant? Yeah. You can catch chlamydia as well. Okay. Even if you're wearing a protective raincoat sheath. It's what's called a whirlwind for a month. Anyway, it's a real shot in the arm for gender socialisation leading to unconscious bias. Well done there. Less helpful for the thousands of people left dead or homeless. What I'm saying is sexism is shite hawks. But also, if you've got a bit of spare cash, consider chucking it at the Red Cross and it's sterling work helping the hurricane victims. Hi, we're here with the Scummy Mummies. Hello. 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 That is more specifically Ellie Gibson. Hi, I am Ellie Gibson. And Helen Thorne. Hello, I am Helen Thorne. I am the Australian one of the scummy mummies for future reference. (laughs) So I'm sorry that we've got you in on the day before your kids go back to school. Uh, Mine's not going back till Wednesday. Uh, Not that I'm counting the hours and the minutes and the seconds. I've got a few more days of mummy, 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 mummy. So cannot wait, to be quite honest with you. Well, I was going to ask you, is that the happiest day of the year or the saddest? But you've sort of answered that question. Both, because you go there and drop the kids off and there's all the other parents and you go, oh my God, my baby. And then you go home and you're like, silence. (sighs) And you do the classic thing, have a nice poo, do about half an hour of Instagram and everything's better. (laughs) Yeah. Drink a cup of tea before it gets cold. Oh, Oh, the dream. Do all the internet shopping and then it's time to pick them up again. So there we are. Job done. You've got two, haven't you? Yep. I have uh, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. I've got a six-year-old and a... Joe is three in December. So tell me how Scummy Mummies came about. How did you two meet? Do you want to go first, Ellie? Oh, go on then. Oh, uh, so we're not normally this polite. We met on the the comedy circuit, basically. So I just started doing comedy after I had my first baby. Uh, I just sort of give it a go and see what happened. And then on my third ever gig, I met uh, Helen Thorne. Um, who I thought was hilarious and really got on with. And it turned out we lived five minutes away from each other. And it turned out our boys, who are six, were born 11 days apart with the help of the same midwife. Mm. I know, there's a lucky lady out there who's seen sides of us we have yet to see of each other, even though we do tour and share a premiere in room on many a (laughs) night. 
<laughs> There's been none of that. Thank well. you very much. Although I have fallen asleep with us both eating kebabs, but that is not a euphemism. No. You did say yet to, as if it, it is something that's on the schedule. But I'm right? sure it's. I'm sure it's going to happen one day. Not not on purpose. Just by <laughs> some kind of thing with mirrors and slipping. I'm sure it's. She's just... thought about this. She's she's dabbled. You see, I've never dabbled. I can I can see she could she could rebound. This could I, be that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I, I, love, I love that we've slipped right into that. Yeah, in the first. We've got we're from school gates to just fannies. Mm. It's good. We met at this funny little stand-up gig. Uh, it was in a shipping container under a flyover in Deptford in South London. If anyone knows in London, that's a nice part, really. Oh, lovely. It's, it's, yes. uh, it's where the I Royals... hear George Clooney holidays there. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he likes to dabble in the Deptford. We just liked each other's stuff. I remember Ellie did stuff about being a mum and I was doing stuff about fannies and how my marriage was in the toilet and we had a pint afterwards and then thought, let's hang out. And, and initially we were both just individual stand-ups, weren't we? And then Ellie came up with this amazing idea about a podcast listener. A yeah, podcast. a podcast. Imagine that. that. Well, that's a waste of everyone's time, isn't it? Yeah. No, uh, we, sorry. This was quite early in the podcasting. We are pioneers. Pioneers, yeah. yeah. How long have you been doing it for? Over four years now. Oh, the, wow. the first so episode is... went out, yeah, July 2013. That's right. So over four years we've been doing it now and have, on Ellie's watch, put it out every fortnight at Tuesday in the morning. And she, I mean, look, she's had babies. She's yes. had You've had appendicitis. Oh, we've uh, had a car accident. Yeah. Nothing will stop the podcast from going out. We're it's, quite anal like that. Yeah. Um, That's but, pretty um, impressive. Thank mm. you very much, Hannah. We've managed like 10 weeks of getting it out on time. I mean, I can't see any reason why we won't, but no, I, I haven't mean, recently given birth to a baby. No, me either. Well, there you go. You, you, you'll be all right. Is it weekly... <laughs> We are weekly. Yeah. See, that's oh. see, we went fortnightly because even I knew that was I'm too yeah. lazy. It's too much commitment. So you also do the live shows, don't you? Yeah. So we do we tour a live comedy show called Scummy Mummies because we we like to expand on that uh, name. Uh, and yeah, we wear gold cat suits and do pretty much like in a variety show for parents. Would you say, mm. Ellie? Yeah. So it's a bit of stand up, a bit of sketches. We do some characters. Like we have these hipster dad characters that we do who sound like this. Yeah. My name's Rod. Yes. I'm really into. Uh, breastfeeding and things like that uh, and then we have lots of silly songs so Helen and I can't sing but we do commit no. it's basically bad karaoke so we've been doing that again for about three years three and a half years something like that yeah. and we take the show all around the country and we do it at lots of festivals and it's been brilliant we love doing it we really love it and what's really nice because we do the podcast and we do the live show and we get people coming to the show or people coming to the show who don't know about the podcast or podcasts so it's, it's really nice to do both and we wrote a book last year that came out this year so it's been nice doing kind of a variety of things that we feel like we're we're putting our fingers in many holes. Is that how you say it? You, see, that's what I mean. She's desperate, <laughs> desperate to get back on the horse. Yeah. But, look, ba- I mean, the basic thesis of Scummy Mummies is that you don't have to be perfect. To well, be I don't think you can be perfect. I don't think anyone is perfect. And I think... There yeah. is a lot of pressure on women to be perfect, as mothers yeah, say. Yeah, and, that, and that's, a, that's a thing, I think, on the... Sort of on the brink of social media, that was that was the thing, and also the media about the bounce back. There was these horrible terms like, you know, it took you know posh by six weeks to get back into her skinny jeans or whatever, and there was that kind of pressure that you had to immediately look glamorous. When when motherhood is the complete antithesis of that, it's sick in your hair, it's poo mm. on the carpet, it's craziness really. But at the same time, it's hilarious and wonderful, mm. and that kind of needs to be celebrated. Otherwise, we'll all go 
effing nuts. Can we swear on this podcast? Yeah, yes, we encourage it. Can. Fuckity fuck fucks there. Let's just get it all out. It's fucking nuts, motherhood. And the engineer has just left the room. Um, <laughs> it's been driven out by oh, fucking. Let's, let's just it? say vulvas then. Come on, let's get it all out. I was at my mate's house on uh, Bank Holiday Monday and he's got uh, he's got twins, a boy and a girl, and they were in some tent in the garden and we were like, you know, eating some food inside and there's a bit of a kerfuffle and the girl just like she's walking out of the tent into the house and she has in her hands her pants and, <laughs> and she's like just uh, she looks quite distressed about it to be fair and they're just like don't go in the house don't go in the house was she's it fully loaded she was has it, done was... a shit in her pants taken oh, yeah. them off in the tent and presented them to her poor parents like a cat dragging in a mouse that's a lovely image <laughs> oh, who wow. then said she's never done this before <laughs> yeah okay I mean but this is the thing like everybody yeah. who's a parent or who knows a parent has a story like this of some sort of failure on the parents part or something hilarious the child has done or filthy and and like in our comedy show in our live show uh, and also on the podcast actually but in the live show we get the audience to write down their scummy mummy confessions we call them so stories like that and then we read out the best ones and we give a prize to the best one and quite honestly it's the it's the best part is of the it, show is it pants full of shit we've right. not had have we had pants full of shit i don't no, know that's not, not on that give out as your prize I no uh, one of one of our winning ones so so we we do it by audience judge like so they go higher or lower we have like a, what we call a scumometer so we have the cards and they can go higher or lower but i remember once there was a barbecue themed one where a little kid came out holding oh. a vibrator and they've been in, in the singing, singing into it like a microphone. That's, That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. And I love, I love the uh, the the card said hashtag not mine. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we had that, and we've had one where a kid had done a shit in a lunchbox on a tube, as we all we were all done that. That's right. They didn't have any nappies, so she let him do it in a Tupperware box, didn't she? Yeah. And then it was the friend's Tupperware box, in fact, I think. And then the friend put it back in the handbag, and then forgot about it and left it there for a week. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, anyone thinking of having children? This this is it. This yeah. is this is the good times. I haven't had kids yet. If you're listening, Idris. Um, <laughs> but how do you not laugh at them all the time? Well, that I mean, you do. You just do. I mean, yeah, you, <laughs> you do a lot I mean, of laughing in like into your shirt collar, into the wall, and yeah. then you compose yourself or say. In and go to the toilet and then go and have a laugh there and then compose yourself saying that's not what we do we don't say fuck to nanny you know like you know that sort of stuff yeah well see I don't have them either and I'm still at the stage where I find children completely losing their shit intrinsically funny <laughs> and my friends that used to laugh with me but now have kids like don't laugh at my kid please when they're doing that on the floor <laughs> really? and you're like oh yeah I can remember my nephew when um, I was offering him what would you like for your dinner he was about three so that I can do Need some, which like an egg, no. Which, uh, go through this massive place, no, no. And then right at the end, he just went, stop suggesting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I just I started sobbing, and I was just like, ah. <laughs> and then he obviously reports back to my brother that Auntie Hannah didn't feed him and then laughed in his face when he was still hungry. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think the trick is if you can to, if, sometimes maybe laughing isn't the thing, but if you can try and remain calm, or like, because my two year old likes to have tantrums, it's hilarious. He'll now lie on the floor and go, I'm having a tantrum. <laughs> and you go, and I like to go, it's true, I learned off my mum, I like to go, okay, is it going to be small, medium or large? <laughs> and he'll be like, 
uh, medium? And I'll be like, right, okay. And then I just laugh. And that sort of diffuses the tension, I think. So I think it's all right to laugh at them because they are funny. Yeah, <laughs> they are hilarious. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I um, I was drinking with my neighbour the other day. We'd been delivered two new car seats. And I said, oh, they're so soft. And my <laughs> my friend and I sat down and were drinking cans of fizzy white wine oh, yeah. in car seats in our kitchen. <laughs> and my my friend's husband comes in and goes, what have you done? I said, look, these new car seats, they're up to 12. And then my my son said, they're not up to 45. <laughs> I just left the room. It was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. Like one line. I was like, that is so funny. And I, uh, yeah, but you can't, you can't predict these things. Yeah. You can't. I think there is, a, there is this, this idea that women can have it all. You know, you can be a fantastic mum. You can work really hard. You can do all of that stuff. It does create a pressure on women. Yeah, it does. But it's a bit of a Russian roulette. Like you, you'll sometimes, you know, you'll, spin the wheel and you feel like you're winning on the day the next time you spin it you feel like you've got a gun to your head mm. like it is and you think you've nailed it and then you haven't yes. like I think that's, that's or you thing. think like all the mums I know have had days where you just feel like you're failing at everything like you're mm. trying to do all these things like the work and the kids and the house and, the, and look after your own parents and all this stuff and you're doing all of it really badly and you sort of feel like what is the point and our philosophy is to kind of say look you know that's that's a universal experience and you're not alone in that and if you can laugh at that and laugh at yourself a bit, and that that's a really good way to get through it. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes things are just too bad yeah. as well. And that's all right, you know. But you just kind of have to hang on in there, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And you just need just a couple of really good mates. Mm. I think that's the most important thing. You've got mates you can be honest with, you can have a glass of wine with on a Friday night and just going this week's been fucked it's been really hard um and you know whether you're in a relationship or not in a relationship yeah i think it's 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 very exposing because you've you've just got yourself and it's not like any other job that you can quit and run away like you're there for life i mean you can some of us have thought about it but i mean (laughs) that's right most of us don't yeah (laughs) i'd rather sometimes be on a cruise in the caribbean than you know wiping sick off the wall it's just it's just a very full-on experience and what's really hard is you think god everyone else has done this all you know people have literally been mothers for millions of years how hard could this be but when it happens to you it's full-on it's really hard and confronting um, but yeah, you do get through it, don't you? Really? Yeah, and equally, it is very rewarding, and all the stuff people say it yeah. is lovely. And you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't swap it for the world. No, possibly a cruise holiday, but a, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right, like with Idris. Um, <laughs> I have to ask you about those gold cat suits. Um, wow, they are a very bold look. It's a strong look, isn't it? It's it is. a, it's a statement. It says. I'm wearing a gold cat suit, and I've had two children. Basically in the nude. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think they were your idea. Yeah, because our first ever comedy show, we did we did leggings and like a, a like a leopard, like leotard, didn't we? Oh, Jen well, likes I, a bit of leopard skin. I do, skin. I do. I'm oh. admiring your jumper, actually. It's, oh, thank uh, you. Helen's is like a leopard's face where the, the jaw is the crotch. <laughs> yeah. And I have a wolf under a full moon with like cutaways at the sides. They're very erotic pieces we've of still, We've still got them. We've we had the same, them, yeah. same one for, for nearly four years. We do like a lycra thing. And we, I think that's one of the lovely bonding things between me and Ellie is that we have no shame. None at all. Nothing. And we're like, oh, let's just go cat suits then. And then Ellie was pregnant at the time. And we used to play this game in the stage show called Pregnant or Fat in which we would get the audience to shout out who was pregnant and who was fat. And it was one, I, I thought it was one of the funniest things we've ever done, but it made the audience really a bit... Yeah, yeah. but it was, there were quite a lot of, people would be very British and sort of embarrassed and yeah. there'd be this sort of weird silence and then someone would just go, 
fat <laughs> points at Helen. So it was always good fun. Um, they sort of started out as a joke, but I think actually, and the response they had was quite surprising, and I think that's because they are so revealing and they do kind of say, look, this is what our bodies really do look like after four kids between us and whatever you look like under your clothes you can't possibly look as bad like not bad but this is what we look like and you don't need to feel bad about your body because look we've got bodies like this and we're showing them off and we're proud of them and we're singing a parody of YMCA in them and that, yeah. that's all right I that's think. really positive and yeah. the first things we wear out now we used to sort of like save them up but actually there's this, there's something quite empowering and exciting well I have to say I did did have a text message this morning from Helen asking if she needed to be wearing her cat and I said no and I'm kind of regretting it now (laughs) well the thing is they do really smell that is the drawback with them you would not be wanting to sit in this enclosed space because you can't wash them at all no No. not even like a little sponge kind of no we could Febreze them but then it just smells like yeah. Lady areas and Febreze. Yeah. Nobody wants that. It's not ideal. Shake no, back. It's no. not ideal. <laughs> but, Shake yeah. and badge. But then we decided, you see... <laughs> and then only this year we decided that the catsuits actually weren't revealing enough. So we did a nude photo shoot. I don't know if you've seen no. these people. Oh, it's probably for the best. I'd yeah. have brought it up sooner if I'd seen them. Yeah. Ah. Should we describe the look for the listener? Ellie? I mean... Yes, well, it was part of this project called Warrior Woman, which was run by a blogger called Style Me Sunday, whose actual name is Natalie. And she did this photo shoot for all these mums. Everybody else wore sort of underwear, you know, bra and knickers, all that, very good, showing off the stretch marks and, again, showing off our bodies and just saying that this is what they look like. But, of course, we always have to go one step further. That's right. We just wore food, uh, everybody. (laughs) We had double-sided tape in which we attached to baby mini baby bells to our nipples. Lovely. Uh, We held a bottle of ginge... A bottle of- <laughs> there we are, that's a Freudian slip. A bottle of gin in front of our minge. Yeah. So it was a ginge. And then we just had a fish finger necklace and that was it. It was good fun. It was it was hilarious. And, yeah. and then the photos were quite strong. Yeah. My husband was a bit like Right, and you're going to put that on the internet. And I was like, y- yep. That's, that's what photos are for. <laughs> for Instagram, they're not yeah. for personal use. Yeah. But we had an amazing response, a really lovely response. No negativity at all, which again for the internet is amazing. <coughs> yeah. But just hundreds of women just going, you know, good for you. Lots of people saying, you're mental, I wouldn't do that. But everybody basically saying, but good for you and why not? Yeah, exactly. And, and and a lot of people just asking how we kept the baby bells on. Yeah. That was, that was it. <laughs> well, I've got stretch marks to nearly up up to the top of my rib cage. And, you know, I'm a size 18 and my boobs flap and they don't bounce. But you just got to get yourself out there. Everyone else looks like that. Mm. Or, or everyone mm. looks else looks like the way they look. And I think that's a nice thing that's coming out of the social media thing. I know social media can be addictive and evil at times, but there's some really great things that have come out of it as well. And especially for mums because that's that feeling of not being alone or not feeling like you're the only one with stretch marks or a hairy ass or boobs that look like spaniels. You've got a hairy ass? No! <laughs> Where can our listeners hear your podcast? Where can they see your shows? How can they get in touch? We are on the iTunes uh, and we're at scummymummies.com. You can find all of our podcasts and our live show dates there. Mm-hmm. We're on Instagram all the time and that's at scummymummies. And we're, yeah, we're touring all around the country. The next, we're doing a run of gigs sort of Birmingham, Manchester area, doing some London, Tunbridge Wells, Bath, yeah. Somerset. And our book, hits. Scummy Mummies, is out now. It's very reasonably priced. It's a very slim volume. You can probably read it in four toilet trips. That was the that was the main aim. That was <laughs> the, the aim, book. yes. 
<laughs> lots of book festivals and um, also if people want to book us we do school events we do mums groups and as well as like theatres as well so yeah Excellent. We were asked to do a bat mitzvah recently, but it didn't work out sadly. But we're we're up for it. We'll yeah, we it. are. Yeah. We are. Yeah, anything really. <laughs> Briz, anything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she'll leave it on that. Thanks. It's been brilliant having you. Thanks ever so much for being here. Thank, Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Yosra Osman, and today I'm going to be talking about the issue of whitewashing in cinema. This is all to do with a recent story, which you may or may not have seen, about the new Hellboy reboot, which has had a bit of controversy, as originally Ed Skrine, who is a British actor, was cast to play Major Ben Daimyo, who is a Japanese-American character in the comics. He has actually stepped away from the role, which is really, really groundbreaking. He's been very, very celebrated for it, and it's just been a really big news story. So we're going to chat about that, and we're going to chat about the issue of whitewashing and why it's really great that an actor came out and said the things that he said. Now, if you saw what he said on Twitter, and I'm quoting here, he said, it is clear that representing this character in a culturally accurate way holds significance for people, and that to neglect this responsibility would continue a worrying tendency to obscure ethnic minority stories and voices in the arts. And it's, it's just really impressive. This is going to get people talking. It already has got people talking. And, and the issue of whitewashing in cinema is is one that comes up time and time again. But it's always worth talking about because it, it's still very prominent, surprisingly. So if we're going to try and break it down. A little bit of a boring history lesson here, but if we if we look at look at whitewashing historically, and we go way way back to the early 1900s and how people from minorities were portrayed then. Um, whitewashing has always come down to this idea, and, and this is still an issue, that being white is more profitable or more marketable. And in, in an essence, it's superior. So casting white people is essentially a better casting choice. And it started out way, way back to the beginning of cinema, um, where you have these sort of ridiculous caricatured portrayals of minorities similar to sort of like minstrel shows Um, and it's changed since then although not completely because if you've seen Johnny Depp in The Lone Ranger which was beyond a terrible film you would think that we haven't changed much but anyway that that's let's let's not go into that it starts out with these sorts of casting choices it's it's moved on um in the 60s it was you know basically white people were always playing minorities in films with ridiculous things like blackface you know it goes all the way to John Wayne playing somebody like Genghis Khan um, in the 60s um, he was just terribly miscast anyway but the point is that you're hiring white people to play minority roles because they are seen as better casting shot choices and this is why it was an issue and it still is an issue unfortunately um, and when you hear about the debate you'll hear a lot of people saying or I have heard a lot of people saying, you know, you've got a... We've now got a black Annie um, called Ranjane Wallace in, in the film that came out a few years ago, uh, or Jaden Smith in The Karate Kid. Oh, my gosh, I mean, black people get to play with traditionally white characters all the time, or any minorities. It's not the same debate. It's just not. You have to look at the deeper problems behind it and the idea that minorities anyway have a massive lack of opportunity in cinema. 
the re representation in cinema still has a really, really long way to go. So by casting someone like Ed Skrein, who is a white British actor, to play a Japanese character, you're essentially telling Japanese people that they don't matter and they don't need to be represented in media. And that's a real issue there. We need representation. It's bad enough that people who play minorities, they really don't have many roles. If you look at the Asian demographic in Hollywood, they only represent a very tiny percentage of any speaking roles in any cinema. I think it's something like 5%. And so why not give them the roles that are actually made for them? This is really what we're what, what getting down to. Well, this is what I'm getting down to when I'm, I'm talking about whitewashing and why we really should be looking at these kinds of roles and, and why we should be casting people from minorities in these roles. And it extends, you know, it does extend beyond race. Again, this is probably something for another talk. It does extend beyond race to disability, transgender characters. It, it can go really, really far. But let's, let's concentrate, because of this story, the Hellboy story, I'm just going to talk about um, race. The lion's share of roles will basically go to white people. We have to be upfront about it. Minorities only really have certainty of getting a character when it's, it physically can't go to a white actor, somebody like Martin Luther King, so D D David Oyelowo, who played him in Selma, or Malcolm X, that went to Denzel Washington. I mean, that's the only situation where there's any certainty that somebody of a minority can play that character. With these other characters, characters like the Hellboy comic character or characters like the Japanese cyborg in Ghost in the Shell, which was played by Scarlett Johansson, for example. We really should be representing minorities more. It's really, really important. A lot of the time, it's not really down to the actors. You I mean, it, it's been quite controversial, something, something like Ghost in the Shell. Scarlett Johansson had to talk about it to the press loads and, and obviously quite awkward scenarios with her interviews there. Um, I think, you know, you get the sort of talk that these roles are about the character... Um, they can be played by anybody, blah, 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 etc., etc. What you'll hear studios saying is that casting choices, basically casting white people makes films more bankable. But if you look at Ghost in the Shell, actually, that film flopped like a sad pancake. So really, that's all a load of bollocks. So in terms of when we look at these roles and why it's so sad that we can't give these roles to people from those backgrounds... It kind of connects to things like Oscars So White and it, it does go down to this deeper problem of diversity in cinema and the fact that, that roles often do go to people we see all the time who have all sorts of roles going at them and it would be really healthy, I think, for cinema to have a, a wide variety of people from different backgrounds playing these sorts of roles. I mean, in a, in a perfect world, we would have totally colourblind casting. You know, it would be a case where you've got main characters from films that, that can go to anybody, actually going to anybody, doesn't really matter, a minority. But for now, let's, let's try and concentrate on that debate where characters from minority backgrounds in things like um, popular culture should go to actors from those backgrounds. And even things, if, I mean, I'm just thinking of things like Tiger Lily in that Peter Pan film you know it's a Native American character going to Rooney Mara I mean that film also funnily enough all these films are just terrible that I'm mentioning um, but it, it, it's, it is about representation and you know when you're a young Native American girl and you're watching these films 
You want to see people playing those characters from your background. You don't want to think you're not important. You're never going to, you know, you, you're not represented in something so big as cinema. So how do we fix that? I mean, that, that's, the, that's the big problem here as well. Actors shouldn't be stepping away from roles. Actors shouldn't be having to do that. It should be the studios that are making these casting choices seriously and properly. And that's the thing that's going to take time. I mean, you have someone like Riz Ahmed who came out um, and said that it's about collective responsibility. I think he congratulated Ed Skrine um, for, in his words, setting the example and reminding us that progress requires sacrifice and representation. And this is an attitude that I think, I think he sums it up really, really well. This is an attitude that I think needs to extend to Hollywood as a whole. It's kind of a sad state where we're still having this issue of whitewashing so, so prominent. And I only mentioned a couple of examples. There are a lot more examples from the last few years. Thanks for listening. Earlier this week, I spoke to comedian and writer Caitlin Brodnick about her new book, Dangerous Boobies, which covers her decision to have a double mastectomy after she was diagnosed with a particular gene mutation that left her incredibly susceptible to breast cancer. A full version of this interview will be our Sunday Chops this week, but in the meanwhile, here's a sneak preview. Hi, I'm here with Caitlin Brodnick. She is on the phone from America, which may explain why she may sound far away. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I have just finished reading your book. Which I enjoyed. Oh, I, enjoy, I enjoyed very much. It, it's difficult to make anything that's serious funny, and you have certainly achieved Thank that. You. That you do have a background in comedy, don't you? I do. Yeah, I think that was the challenging thing. Is I know we can have fun with this, but I was a little bit worried. I also it was really important to me to put all of like the medical information. So I just relied really heavily on some incredible doctors. Know that I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist. I do think you have to approach it in a more kinder, softer way because some of the information out there is just so overwhelming. It's also nothing that I I didn't want to read any of that when I was first trying to figure out. When I first was diagnosed and I was learning about my own health, I didn't want to read any of those serious medical memoirs, you know, a medical abstract or even an online article. I'd get very overwhelmed. So I was like, what would I have wanted and how can I make like ease somebody into this? So We should probably skip back a bit for our listeners that mm-hmm. haven't had the benefit of sure. uh, reading your book. You decided to move forward with your double mastectomy because you had tested positive for a gene that showed that you were likely or more likely to develop breast cancer. But you actually have a a family history, including in your dad's family. It's quite extraordinary. I do. I don't think the decision is right for everyone, but mine definitely came as a result of really a childhood of dealing with death. My dad, the only surviving person in his family, he's lost both parents and two sisters to cancer. And as I was growing up as a child, I just knew all too well. We joke in our family, like, we're very good at funerals. Like, if you need us to come to a funeral, we know exactly what to do. Like, I just went to so many funerals and dealt with so much death. And I was actually born nine months after my aunt passed away at... 33 from breast cancer and we think she got it at 27 and she ignored it and it became the size of a golf ball by the time she started treatment and she passed away and so it's very popular in the Jewish tradition to name a child or give a child's middle name to somebody who recently passed so we talk about death a lot we talk about life a lot but I knew 
immediately that like I was considered the reincarnation of my dead aunt who I never met, but I knew that she died of breast cancer. I knew that it was a horrible tragedy in the family. So I just was very aware of this type of tragedy at a very young age. And so when I got tested positive for the BRCA1, and it's a genetic mutation, so everyone has a BRCA1 and a BRCA2 gene, also called BRCA, but if you have the mutation, that means that your body has less of an ability to fight off bad behaving cells, cancer cells that sort of are being rogue and they're not doing what they should be doing. And our body has all these wonderful natural defenses, but if you have the genetic mutation, then your body is less able to handle that. So they told me when I was, I believe, 25, that I had a lifetime expectancy of getting breast cancer, and that percentage was 87%. I think now with more research, it's lowered to 83%, but that was so alarming That's as a young woman and felt like I they were I was given a cancer diagnosis. It felt like I was waiting for cancer my whole life and then for them to give me this incredibly high gene, which in in a crazy way it was I think comforting to my father because it wasn't just a fluke that he lost all these wonderful family members. It was a gene that was connected. So hopefully if there's a cause, there's a solution. And he's in the medical industry. So I think for him it felt like terrible but also okay we can we can handle this it's a specific problem it's not just by chance and I got it from his side of the family and he has the gene and so men and women can both have the gene when I got diagnosed with it I really lost my mind (laughs) it really was the most insane thing you say in your book there's an honesty in it you just didn't think about it and got drunk for three years which I think is how a lot of women in their 20s do deal with their problems be they problems from the past or problems coming in the future as a young woman like when I got the test I was like this is insane and I also I didn't go to the right person to get to deliver that information I I went to like a very brash very intense surgeon who just immediately told me we should have the mastectomy and I was young and I was scared and so yeah I just got trashed I just got drunk for years and was like this sad girl talking about her diagnosis that she might one day could have cancer you never know <laughs> like yeah. I was a basket case <laughs> you talk quite a lot about the fact that Angelina Jolie did mm-hmm. so much and I assume that this is part of the same thing if you talk about it and get that out there is what's driven you to write the book Yes, exactly. I mean, I really think Angelina Jolie's honesty was just incredible. And she didn't really have to do much more. She just had to say she had the surgery and what the surgery was and her diagnosis. And it just opened the door. Like, it made it so much more approachable in this crazy way. And, you know, we don't want to believe that, like, celebrities can influence or help us. But this incredibly famous, overly sexualized woman who uses her body and her breasts really well and to her advantage and she's way more comfortable in her body than I would probably ever be in mine and she is coming out to say she had this very intense life-changing and body alterating surgery and it just was so refreshing to also have an actress be so honest about it there I know there are so many actresses and celebrities who talk about plastic surgery or don't talk about it and it's all sort of hidden and hush hush and for her just to be like this is what I'm doing it's very important to me I felt such a kinship because um there is that feeling of like I haven't had cancer yet so I do feel at times like 
nervous or embarrassed when I'm around cancer survivors because they're so much more stronger than I could ever be. Like I literally chose to pay doctors to remove body parts (laughs) because I am so afraid of getting cancer. And I know some people will say, well, it's so extreme, but I've seen cancer wreak havoc on so many family members and I've seen it not go very well. And I've seen the speed at which cancer can go and and I know some amazing women who beat it and they're fabulous and they're like back to rock climbing and living their lives but as I understood it it, in my experience as my childhood and also I have a friend who's currently dying from it and it's just was something that I knew that I didn't want to handle and quite frankly I didn't know if I could emotionally handle it some women are pretty incredible and their mental strength and their willpower can really help them. It's a really important added bonus to treatment. And I was like, I don't know if I could do that. I also had insanely large breasts and was excited to have a breast like reduction and redo. So I was like, this is kind of a, a best of both worlds. I could get like two, kill two birds with one stone. You did appear to have insanely huge breasts. And that comes from someone who has pretty big breasts themselves. Interesting about the relationship that women have with Mm -hmm. their breasts even if you don't realize perhaps that you do have a relationship with your breasts well and I think every woman's different that's why I always say I'm going to share my experience but I don't know if it's right for everyone like I know some women that are very in touch with their breasts and they feel very connected and they feel that it's a very important part of their sexuality I never had that I felt like I was always drowning in my breasts I'm a very short woman and I just they were so large that I just felt like a balloon. And are we all right to mention that you're pregnant now? Yes, I am pregnant. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's awesome. It's crazy. Excellent. What do you do? I'm due in February. You won't be able to breastfeed, will you? Because yeah, and I was right before I decided to have the surgery. I was really nervous to talk about it with my husband because he loves like organic, healthy, free range everything, and he's very he doesn't like any toxic chemicals in the house, and he's like a hippie in that sense but also smart um and so i was worried that like i would be giving his future children a formula and i was worried that he'd be upset and then he told me he didn't care at all and that he was formula fed and i know i was formula fed so that quickly that stress quickly went away and i talked to some really good friends of mine who've had children they said oh it's such a relief that you don't even have to have the stress of breastfeeding because i know i mean i definitely felt this and I won't be breastfeeding, but there is such a pressure. There is such a stigma. I do think it's incredible and so healthy, but I think there's a lot of pressure to be like the perfect mom as soon as the baby comes out and to be perfect at breastfeeding and to be handling everything wonderfully. Luckily, like I have a lot of my own anxiety, so I'll handle other stuff. I don't have to stress about the breastfeeding. You do sound incredibly happy. No doubt about it. You haven't, <laughs> you haven't made the wrong decision. That said, you are very For keen me, to, yeah. to point out that it's a decision is different for everyone. What I wanted for women and what I wanted to offer was that this is an example of everything that happened because I had so much pain and anxiety and fear going through my brain and I just wanted somebody to lay it out for me in like a very simple way. Um, and so but part of that, what, I was, what I've explained and what I talked to friends and everything, if you feel that you're at high risk or even if you have high anxiety that you're at high risk, find a genetic counselor and ask them to go through it with you say you're negative for the gene if that test makes you feel better and gives you you know because we're talking about our future 
percentage of death and, you know, mortality and cancer. It's such a crazy thing. Like in life, you're not really given a piece of paper with a statistic of like, okay, there's like point zero one percent that I'll get hit by a bus this morning on my commute to work. Like, I mean, we all want to be healthy and and we all want to live a good life, but we're not constant. We're not staring at test results that can be very traumatic. Obviously, our listeners can pick up your book. You did also make a, a documentary with Glamour magazine called Screw You Cancer. Yes, you can get that on YouTube or on Glamour.com. And that was what I actually did. It was the first step of this trying to share my experience. I did that while the surgery was happening, which was sort of radical because I'm a comedian, I'm a performer, and um, my comedy partner was like, you've got to do something. You know, you're, you're going to use this in your act anyway. You you should record or, or even, like, write everything down. So I asked my friend who worked for Glamour magazine if I could do a blog and sort of do a video entry before and after each doctor's appointment, like I've seen some women do on YouTube. Yeah. And then Glamour was like, let's do a full, full-blown documentary. And so they're there with me, like... <laughs> as I'm getting ready to go into surgery, as I'm like getting my paperwork. I mean, it was so much. At the time, it was sort of insane. I was like, I can't believe I'm allowing a camera crew to follow me getting a mastectomy. But for me as a performer, and I really felt like I was like a little soldier and reporter for those other women that might be intimidated. I just kept thinking of like, what did I want to know? And there was times where I was like, I don't want the camera crews here. And then I'd be reminded, well, you asked us to follow you, <laughs> asked us to show you, show everything. Are you sure you don't want to do anyone? I was like, no, you're right. I do. I do want to be fully exposed because I, I don't think there's enough coverage. I don't think enough people are talking about it. And it was nice because it made me like put on my lipstick and go to work and yeah. going to work just meant talking to a camera crew. Yeah. It wasn't very hard. I never left my house. So it was, <laughs> it was pretty great. Excellent. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Uh, Question. I'm not answering that. Hello, this is Sarah Millican, and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. I've had some great questions this week. Thank you so much for joining in, you guys. Um, These are off Twitter. The first one is um, from Ms. Tina Tina, excellent name. Why do men think it's sexy to have a picture of them holding a trout as their date and sight profile pic? Now, I haven't dated for a long time. Uh, It's sort of frowned upon when you're married. Um, So I've never been on a dating website. Um... I didn't know that they did that sort of thing. Now, is that to say, you know, I caught this fish so I'll catch you? I don't know, feels kind of threatening. Um, is a trout a big... I don't know anything about trouts. Is that even plural? Um, is that to say I'm big and strong and I can hold a trout? Is that to say, sorry if I smell a fish later, but this is the reason? I think it's very odd that men... Do they really think it's sexy? What men think is sexy is not always sexy, though, is it? What I think is sexy in a man is like men who can do really practical jobs. You know, a man who takes the bins out without being asked to, or a man who just, oh, just does the dishwasher and puts it all in the right place. (laughs) I'm getting a little bit moist just talking like this, wowzers. I think maybe we need to chat to some men and tell them that holding fish is is not the way forward. I mean, buying one catching one, cooking it, doing a lovely tea, putting a pudding on, maybe a pavlova, all of those things. Holding a pavlova on their dating self. See if they only knew that holding a pavlova, how many women would be swiping the correct way for yes. I don't know which is, is, is it right? I don't know. See, this is this is good because if I was put under sort of extreme 
situation where I was being quizzed about whether I was cheating on my partner, I'd pass straight away, wouldn't I? Because I clearly have no fucking clue about dating at all. I'm not sure how much of a clue I had when I was actually doing it. We've got another question. This is from Stuart Brown. Stuart Brown asks, what piece of advice would you travel back in time to tell yourself and at what stage of your life would you go back to? I think a lot of people do that thing with it. Oh, I'm going to go back to when I was a teenager and, you know, and tell me that, you know, everything's all right. And I probably would do that. But also I'd really like to go back to 24 hours ago and tell me not to have bread because I'm not supposed to have bread because it makes me shit like way more than I should. And today I had bread because bread's so nice but um that's i would i would do that i would go back in time a very short time and just let me just remind myself i might even describe exactly what happens when i have bread i think that would put me off such good questions thank you Stuart, and thank you miss tina tina i hope you have a great week guys bye bye if you'd like me to answer one of your questions then tweet us at standard issue uk using the hashtag smqt Thank you. Standard issue for all women. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Hi there, and welcome to Jenny off the blocks, in which we metaphorically deliver a swift left hook to the patriarchy with a weekly roundup of women's sport. I'm Jen. Only my family and very old friends call me Jenny. Instantly, I rebranded when I went to university. Anyway, before we get cracking, let's just give a massive high five to US Open champion Sloane Stevens, who won her first Grand Slam on Saturday in New York. Stevens became the fifth unseeded woman to win a Grand Slam singles title in the Open era. All this just a couple of months after returning from an 11-month break due to injury. And the best thing about it, actually, was um, her her little face when she was uh, presented with her winner's cheque. And uh, I think she said something like, Ooh, that's a lot of money, which was very, very charming and, and lovely, lovely stuff. So moving on, doesn't time fly when you're having fun? It seems like only yesterday I was telling you all about the exciting upcoming events in women's sport this summer. But as the passage of time dictates, summer is over. Well, I mean, it's not actually over until the 19th of September, which is a little fun fact for you. A lot of people think September's fully the autumn, but it's not. Uh, It's just a bit shit because you have to go back to school or accept that you don't have another holiday coming up for a while. Um, I think I've gone full partridge here, so I will move on. With autumn rapidly approaching, here's what you can look forward to in women's sport in the next few months. Starting with boxing, which I fucking love, and which I actually dabble in a little bit myself. But not like getting punched in the face like it. I mean, I pay a man called Linvel who lets me punch his hands once a week while I ask stupid questions like, if Nicola Adams punched your hands, would it hurt you? So, segueing seamlessly here, Nicola Adams will in fact make her US debut on Saturday in Las Vegas, where she'll fight on the undercard of Saul Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin. She'll be fighting against Hungarian Alexandra Vlach. I think that's how you say it, I'm not sure. It's Adam's third professional bout, and Vlach has a fair bit more experience with 17 fights under her belt, 11 of which she's won. I absolutely adore Nicola Adams, so I'm properly excited about that. Fresh from success in the Cricket World Cup this summer, England are set to face Australia in the Ashes across October and November. Obviously, if you know anything about cricket, you'll know Australia are pretty good at it. But um, for England to follow up their World Cup win with a victory here would be a fantastic end to an already brilliant year. 
In cycling, the final couple of rounds of the UCI BMX Supercross World Cup take place on September the 16th and 17th, while the Road World Championships in Norway take place on the 17th to the 24th of September. The long list of Great Britain's riders was confirmed a couple of weeks ago and includes Lizzie Danen, who might yet be ruled out after undergoing surgery to remove her appendix a fortnight ago, um, but also Rio 2016 track gold medalist Eleanor Barker. In football, England will play Russia in a World Cup qualifier on September the 19th and looking a bit further forward in November, they'll play Bosnia and Herzegovina on the 24th and Kazakhstan on the 28th, the latter of which is rather curiously being played in Colchester. Wales play Kazakhstan on Sunday, that's this Sunday coming up, and Northern Ireland play Norway on Friday the 15th, which is also my birthday. Incidentally, throughout the autumn, there's all sorts of gymnastics championships going on in the artistic, acrobatic and trampoline disciplines. But unfortunately, we've just missed the rhythmic gymnastics world championships. Um, Another fun fact for you, somewhere on the Internet, there's actually a video of me doing a rhythmic gymnastics routine choreographed by yours truly to the theme tune from Black Beauty. And I'm not really sure why I'm telling you this, given that the routine sort of uh, culminates in me doing a back bridge in which I almost reveal my vagina to the camera. Uh, it's uh, leotards, they're, they're not great for that kind of thing. It would have been very awkward. My best friend was filming it. Um, yeah, it's, I digress. There's some horse racing going on this week at the St Ledger Festival in Doncaster and in October, the future Champions Day in Newmarket. Also in October, the British Champions Day at Ascot. I can only hope to be on a train back from Feltham at around Ascot kicking out time as I was earlier this year. I mean, they say that horse racing's posh, but I'm not going to lie to you, I've eaten posher sausage rolls. The World Rowing Championships are taking place rather ironically given recent extreme weather events in uh, Florida, or at least they're due to be taking place in Sarasota between September the 24th and October the 1st. Hoping to bounce back from defeat in the Rugby World Cup final, England will play France, Ireland and Canada in November in the Old Mutual Wealth Series. In sailing, throughout the autumn and winter, the Clipper Round the World Race will be taking place before finishing in London next summer. And in December, the Sailing World Championships will also take place in Fremantle. My second favourite combat sport, FYI, Taekwondo, is going to have its World Championships in Dublin in October. And in tennis, we're pretty much done now for the year, but the WTA finals take place in Singapore in October and we'll be looking forward to seeing Joe Conta hopefully back on winning form there after a sort of fairly disappointing time at the US Open going out in the first round. Last, but by no means least, the ITU World Triathlon Series Grand Final takes place in Rotterdam this week, starting on September the 14th, followed by the World Ironman Championships in Hawaii next month. So, as ever, there's a lot going on. All of this information, uh, not the stuff about my vagina and rhythmic gymnastics, because that would be really weird, is available on the Women's Sports Trust website, www.themixzone.co.uk. That's all from me for this week. Join me for more women's sports things next week. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I did Aladdin. And this week was quite unusual because we actually... All watched it together in our group house that we in all live in. <laughs> Day 29, yeah. watch Aladdin. Yeah. So. 1992, 
Aladdin was released. There are problems with gratuitous racial stereotyping, which I don't think I'm the person to discuss, to be honest. Okay, fair enough. Heads up on that straight away. But other than that, as you can tell, because you watched it yesterday with me, I really rather enjoyed it. She did. I've never seen you so happy in a Disney film. There was a little bit where you danced like a monkey. Yeah, that that didn't actually happen. He's got the monkeys. He's He's got got the monkeys. monkeys. But anyone who hasn't seen Aladdin, uh, who knows what they've been doing with their life, but could you give us a little rundown on the plot? Yeah. So Aladdin basically is a street rat who is dressed like MC Hammer, if MC Hammer was on Strictly Come Dancing. (laughs) That's got to happen. He's allegedly very, very poor. He has to steal money for food. But nonetheless, he still lives in a flat that is nicer than mine. (laughs) It's got a lovely view of the palace. And he lives with a monkey called Abu, who is voiced by Donald Duck. And he is the diamond in the rough which does sound to me like a euphemism for anal sex. And once that was in my head, the entire rest of... Aladdin went a bit bonkers for me. And the palace that he can see, there's a sultan who lives there, who is, of course, can we guess how old he is? 9,012. I thought he was more like 107. I think you've gone too far. Yeah, you can tell that because he has a daughter that's a teenager. He just sits and plays with toys, the sultan. (laughs) He is Donald Trump if Donald Trump had all of the evil sucked out of him. And he lives with his daughter, Jasmine, who inexplicably is dressed like a belly dancer. Just to go back to the Sultan momentarily, he's a cross between Donald Trump with all the evil sucked out of him and Alistair Darling. Yeah, yeah, with the big brown <laughs> eyebrows. Massive black eyebrows yeah, and then pure confusing. white hair, including uh, on his chest, which you get a little sneaky peek at. You do. I always think, though, if we're going to talk about Alistair Darling, that Alistair Darling reminds me of C-3PO. Why? Why? Just look at a picture of Alistair Darling and a picture of C-3PO and tell me if you can tell the difference. Okay, guys, that's your first Google this shit. Yeah. yeah. The bad guy is called Jafar and he is a trusted advisor of the Sultan, but he's plotting against him. So he's very much the Michael Gove of this. Um, he has a parrot called Iago, which controversially I actually think might be the best thing in Aladdin. He is But brilliant. we'll get to that later. He's voiced by Guilford Gottfried. He wasn't the first choice. Apparently, the first choice was either Danny DeVito or Joe Pesci. Either of those would have worked. Yeah. I think he'd have been a more violent parrot. He might have been. If he'd been played by Joe Pesci. Yeah. He'd been putting other parrots' heads in vices. Yeah. 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 And funny how, funny how. (laughs) Well, I amuse you. (laughs) Well, you do, actually. (laughs) Thanks, Jen. Yeah. So, obviously, these two, lovebirds, are going to meet at some point. What happens is she escapes... Oh, Jasmine and Aladdin. No, no, no. Not a parrot and Joe Pesci. That is a whole different film. What happens is she escapes the palace because they want her to get married and she doesn't want someone to choose her husband for her. And she wanders out onto the streets. She has no concept of money. Almost immediately she runs into trouble and she's saved by Aladdin and then it's revealed that she's the princess and he gets thrown into a dungeon where he's tricked by Jafar who's dressed up as C6 Steve and he tricks him into... (laughs) Into going... Into the mouth of, I don't know, some sort of jaguar. It's called, it's lion. quite clearly called the Cave of Wonders. Okay, the Cave of Wonders. Which is what I call my lady centre. Yeah, okay. <laughs> which in itself is a euphemism for vagina. In case you didn't get that. But at this point, the film goes basically full on the Indiana Jones as Aladdin and his monkey try and get the lamp. Except, unlike... Indiana Jones, he isn't lumbered with a monkey who's an idiot. He's basically the equivalent of Indiana Jones and Ziggy Sabotka from The Wire. (laughs) Everything goes terribly badly wrong. Upshot is, he gets his hand on the genie. And this is the point at which the film completely changes. Because this is the point at which Robin Williams arrives and either makes the film brilliant, if you think that, 
or sucks the oxygen out of the film, if you think that. I think it's possibly a combination of the two. He's brilliant oxygen sucking. He has some, like, absolutely cracking moments, which I believe were improvised? Everything everything was improvised, yeah. I do think he has some cracking moments, but having watched it again, it's interesting because what it has is a load of current references, and I wonder how those references mean anything to children. How children know who Jack Nicholson is. All Uh, children have seen The Shining, surely, by the age of three or four. You've seen The Shining like six times. But what it does actually mean is it, it will make that film date really quickly because of the references in it. There's a Marty Feldman reference. Our kids aren't going to know who Feldman is. There is. I There's know also... who that is. Who is that? Why are you, why are you here, Jeff? They're such bullies, aren't they? <laughs> the um, other thing that there are a load of references to are it is very self-referential to other Disney films it is. within the Disney genre. Yeah, but the good ones. But the, what I will say is that the songs that Robin Williams sings are excellent. In particular, Prince Ali, which is completely brilliant. It is genuinely like be our guest. It might actually be the best thing that Disney's ever done. I have a special misheard lyric for Prince Ali, which is a great song, and I can't not sing it. Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababa, strong as ten regular men sexually. It's the Spunk special. It is the Spunk spunk special. special. On the other hand, A Whole New World, and you know this to be true because you watched me, made me put my hands over my ears because if you haven't watched it, Whole New World is basically Thunder Road, except Thunder Road is an extraordinarily well-crafted song and really evocative and brilliant and A Whole New World is terrible, cheesy shit. Don't you dare close your eyes, don't you? Oh, don't. It makes bits of sick come up in my mouth. Hannah's got a very, very sensitive gag reflex and it was absolutely (laughs) triggered by Whole New World. And And I'll tell you what it was triggered by, the information that someone shared with me yesterday. We increased this uh, gag reflex by telling her that Katie Price and Peter Andre had released the single A Whole New World. This was new information to John Levy. She was Mm. not happy about it. On a scale of one to not happy. Why did that happen? Why was that allowed to happen? I think Dead Air is the only response to that, to be honest. I don't know. No. Did it chart at number one in the Smash Hit Parade? I love that you're looking, at, looking <laughs> to me for answers on this, because I can't give you an answer. I would hope not, but there's no accounting for taste. There was a time when Peter Andre quite clearly based all of his looks on Aladdin. Mysterious Girl. Mysterious Girl. Yeah. Well, Aladdin is actually uh, supposed to be Tom Cruise. That's who his face is. Because, uh, to be fair to Aladdin, he... I mean, I know Jen has some... Strong trouser feelings about Aladdin. <laughs> but he is, to be fair to him, he has actually a personality, which is something that I don't think a Disney prince had had up until that or, point. Or indeed Tom Cruise. He's so yeah, much right. fitter than Tom Cruise. Dunleavy always looks baffled because she's yeah. never fancied a cartoon because she's weird. Yeah, or Tom Cruise. No, 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 no one ever fancies Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. I would say that actually Aladdin, although he is two-dimensional, has an extra dimension to Tom Cruise. He's wily. I imagine you like that in a man. Some wily. He's a canny fucker. But then he sometimes acts like he's never left the house. He can be a bit thick as well. Yeah. Yeah. He's a conundrum wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a what the fuck is going on. But very good at stealing, apart from when he gets caught, which is quite frequent. But he has a magic carpet. He doesn't at the beginning. Obviously, he finds it in the cave of, of Wonder, wonders. In my vagina. A magic, a magic carpet, yeah. yeah. Well, and he takes her, like I say, he pulls up at her house, proper Thunder Road, like, and he takes her on a ride and she falls in love with him. But then, of course, everything goes to shit and there's some trials and tribulations. And then what happens at the end, spoiler alert, is that he and the princess are able to get married. So he frees the genie because 
he no longer needs a genie to be at his beck and call because he now has a wife. She can iron his shirts for him instead. She can. He does start wearing shirts because for a long time he's just in a waistcoat and uh, his buff, buff, cartoony torso. But there is a a moral to the story. Yes. Which is sort of told via the medium of different size hats. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He starts off, he's got a tiny hat. He has. Then he's a prince for a bit. He's got a fucking huge hat. Yeah. But then when they're all like, actually, look, there's more to life than massive hats and you just got to be true. Just got to be your best self, Aladdin. He's got like you know a bigger hat, but like a, a, a modest, a modest, a modest princely hat. Yeah. hat. It's a hat that yeah. neither makes his head look massive or teeny tiny. Yeah, it's like it's sensible. Yeah. yeah, I like the bit where I can't remember what he says now. One of my favourite. It's Robin, so good that you can't Robin remember. Williams it. bits of it is. Doesn't he look lovely, Jill? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah. they make the like, Thanksgiving parade. All, all of these bits are in the same song, though. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah I mean yeah. it is, but there are other cracking songs as well. But yeah, the the first one that the genie sings is well good. Never had a friend like me. I yeah. feel like they did it again in Toy Story, didn't they? Um, well, unless you've got a friend in me. Yeah. yeah. They've stuck to a theme. Yeah, friends. Yeah, they basically just have a barrel of words, <laughs> right? And they just pull them out and they're like, oh, fuck, we've got a friend again. Oh, I was really excited. I thought you were going to say a barrel of monkeys. Yeah, well, they probably do have a barrel of monkeys. So, less sexist than a lot of Disney stuff that I've watched so far. I do have to say that. It is more racist than a lot of Disney stuff I've watched <laughs> so far. Swings and roundabouts, mate. Yeah. Jasmine is, uh, she's an independent woman, She's fighting for of. her own agency, isn't she? Yeah. She wants is. to be able to decide which monkey. She is, however. Yeah. She goes out into the real world, meets a street rat who can't afford to eat food, mm. and takes food off him, eats it, yeah. and then moans about how tough her life is. So she is very much the Ivanka Trump of this <laughs> thing. They have the same problem, despite being from such different circumstances. But well, well, they do, don't they? When they're like sitting and they're both like chatting about, like, oh, I just They both can't. feel trapped. She yeah. feels trapped by her immense wealth, and he <laughs> feels trapped by the fact that he'll probably go to prison and die soon. Yeah. 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 Oh, all right, so you're enough. right, they're living exactly the same it's life. She's just exactly got longer hair. She does have much longer hair. It's lovely as well. It's lovely. And she's got a tiger. Yeah. I'd really like a tiger. I wouldn't, because it might eat me. A oh. Disney tiger wouldn't eat you. No. But I would end up have. with Richard Parker. I'm looking at you. Have you, have you not read to Life or watched Life of Pi? Right. Okay, Richard Parker is the tiger. Okay. I keep thinking about those two dudes who do that thing in Las Vegas. Oh, Siegfried and Roy. Yeah. Roy. Didn't one of them get eaten by a tiger? I don't think he, he got mauled by he he did have a, Yeah, he had a bit of a tough time with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, end. he's scarred for life. It's yeah, well, yeah. come on. This was a man who'd had, like, so much plastic surgery that... Uh, some more plastic surgery probably wouldn't be that much of I a I think the tiger was his plastic surgeon. Uh, <laughs> That's what he decided to go for. Yeah. You've missed a bit, mate. Let me help you out with that. It apparently marks a turning point in, up until that point, mostly Disney films have been done by voice actors, either voice actors or stand-up comedian, but a stand-up comedian who was not as famous as Robin Williams. And from then on, they did sort of stunt cast. But he fell out with Disney quite badly over it. For a while, and he refused to be titles. in the And he refused to be in the sequel. And therefore, the genie is played by Dan Cass... Dan Castanola from The Simpsons. From The Simpsons, oh. yeah. So I haven't not. seen it. No. I haven't seen it. But Why can't they him. just end things, Hannah? Interestingly, I thought that the person that should have played him in the sequel, and I googled it, and apparently he was the the next choice after Robin Williams for the original was John Goodman. 
Oh, John Goodman would make an excellent genie. Yeah. He'd have made a very different genie. Uh, he does a lot of impressions as well, and like a lot of good impressions, and I think that's what they were looking for. He'd have been a lot less full-on, possibly. John Goodman's incredibly full-on. Yeah. He's understated full-on. You've not been watching the right stuff. Yeah. You need to watch some uh, Coen Brothers films. Yeah. yeah, I think the last thing I saw him in was Treme. Well, less happy times for him. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, not that genie. Been a really sad genie. <laughs> Quite. Just going back to Robin Williams as a genie, I know you guys do think he's a bit much, but I think he's brilliant. And I just remember as a kid watching it, actually, 92, how old was I? I'm not necessarily a kid, as a 15-year-old watching it, just thinking he was... That energy was amazing. And when we've watched other Disney films recently, I think Aladdin is the first one to really up that energy level and it's really high octane and it doesn't ever falter and it's funny the lines are really funny. I see. Ended. I didn't like. I. I'm not. I've never been a fan. For me, he's always been. He's too fucking much in everything. Like, I, I mean, he is quite. He is quite much. That in was this, his thing, I have though. to say. Uh, you, I know, yeah, but you don't. I, that's. It's not my thing. That's fair enough, Jen. That's yeah. not me. Uh, yeah. Just a little bit of quiet time while Jen and I wrestle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just remembered how much you hated Boo. You hated the monkey. Oh, he's to... a twat, though. He is a yeah. proper twat. As I said, Ziggy Sabotka. He's fucking annoying. He's always. I'm surprised he didn't get thing. his cock out and start, and start waving around in the bar. <laughs> They've edited that scene. That's on the director's cut yeah. of Aladdin. Yeah. He's At one all... point, he's got a duck on a on a chain. He's also like unnecessarily territorial about Aladdin. Hey, hey, come on now! If a monkey's not allowed to be in love with Aladdin, come on, Jen. Are you jealous of the monkey? Yeah, that's it. That's it. I want to be... You want to be Aladdin's monkey? Yeah. But only a special sexy one. (laughs) That seems like a fitting place to end our discussion on Aladdin, with Jen as Aladdin's special sexy monkey, yet again. Dunleavy, what score are we giving Aladdin? I am going to give it four Four out of five. Four monkeys wimbling their cocks out of five. (laughs) I would suggest that five monkeys wimbling their cocks is just too many monkeys wimbling cocks. You'll have someone's eye out with that. (laughs) Exactly. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for downloading us. Next week, Sarah Pascoe and Carrie Lloyd talk Pride and Prejudice. Liz Buckley tells us how much she loves Debbie Harry and why. And there'll be our regular mix of news, sport and gobshitery. Our music was composed and recorded by Barry Hilton, all rights reserved. We've got an archive full to brimming with absolutely smashing articles over at www.standardissuemagazine.com and our Sarah's got a whole section of her website devoted to us. We also have various In Conversation events coming up with an absolute corker on October the 5th featuring Rebecca Front, What Now, Scarlett Moffat, Hold the Phone and Evelyn Muck. Shut up now, we're too good to you. There are loads more of these planned across the country, not just in London, so please do keep an eye on our events page, which you'll find at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. We'd really love to hear from you and you can write to us at mailbag at standardissuemagazine.com, follow us on Twitter at standardissueuk or find us on Facebook and Instagram because we are totally up with the kids. Also, we've all got individual Twitter handles well worth a follow. Hannah's on at that Dunleavy, Jen's on at Inspiragen, and I'm at Mixtanunum. It's really helpful if you want to rate and review us. Well, we don't want to twist your arm, but five stars seems like a decent shout, and you'll find all of our podcasts on iTunes and Acast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay frosty. <laughs> <laughs>